مباركه كريمه اللهم احطنا بملائكتك يا رب ورحمتك يا رب العالمين اللهم ارنا الحق حقا وارزقنا اتباعه وارنا الباطل باطلا وارزقنا اجتنابه اللهم ادخلنا برحمتك في عبادك الصالحين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على سيدنا وحبيبنا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه اجمعين السلام عليكم ورحمه الله تعالى وبركاته ان شاء الله تري ويل تيك اب سوره المائده and uh, alhamdulillah we're again i'm struggling with numbers what's this surah number five five right five with five so this is the fourth large surah fourth large surah so if you count the fatiha as one then you have these major books big surahs so this is the fourth one entitled al-ma'idah ma'idah in arabic is a uh, reference to a table that is spread out with food necessarily not just a table but a table spread out with food and it's um, it's a reference to uh, an incident uh, in the life of Isa in which his disciples requested a table from the heavens for Allah to give them as a sign as also a confirmation for them as a miracle they really requested this additional gift from Allah Azza wa Jal. And indeed, Allah Azza wa Jal provided that table. But provided it with conditions. That if you indeed are going to receive this table from the heavens, I'm going to give it to you. But that, you know, will place upon you additional conditions in life, an additional contract. That if you violate, you're going to be in serious trouble. Because you're asking for more. It's a real representation of this surah. And we'll get into it more, inshallah. What's up with this table? And what's this surah about? And why is it entitled Al-Ma'idah? If you think about it, brothers and sisters, Al-Ma'idah as a word is a reference to also a situation in our lives where we're invited to somebody's home. And they put on the table all kinds of foods that will delight you. They honor you as a guest. And... That is the expectation that we have when we go to hosts. And imagine if you have now a generous host, what they will do with you. But in return for this, in exchange for this generosity and kindness, there are particular etiquettes that the guests should uphold. Isn't it true? Right? Ultimately, it's a beautiful relationship. If you think about it, the host and the guest have a tight relationship. Otherwise, they would not host you in their home. And they would not give you all that food. How likely is it that this guest would forget that I'm being honored and treated generously? Right? It's unlikely. And, and, and imagine socially how we perceive people who go into people's homes, consume the gifts, enjoy all that kind treatment, and then start violating the sacred rules of the house, or the sanctity, or the secrecy, or the honor of the individuals that are hosting them. As if it is something expected. Imagine now guests that come, in, come into people's homes and they start consuming right and left without any regard or respect for people and actually hurt them. As if this is something that they should expect. You know what? I am entitled to this food. We know very well that this is a violation of social codes. Right? Of honor and dignity. Brothers and sisters, ultimately all of our lives with Allah is like that table spread out. Spread out giving us from all his bounties, generosity, and in return for this, there are particular expectations. 
Allah ultimately defines those things as halal and haram, but it's much more than halal and haram. It's about a table being spread out with absolute affection and love. This surah, if you really think about it and if you examine it closely, you'll find a lot of halals and harams in it. In fact, let me just give you seg a little bit into this, take a detour, and tell you about its revelation and how scholars look at this surah, and why did I begin with a table? Because sometimes we look at this surah, we look at it as a surah, another surah of sharia, but we forget the context. Right? This surah was amongst the last to be revealed. Amongst the last to be revealed as big surahs. It came down after the conquest of Mecca. So it's a wrap-up of the life of Prophet Muhammad He finished. He's done with his mission. People have come into the fold of this faith. The community has been established. They went back from Medina and conquered Mecca. People of Mecca came into Islam. Islam has spread in, in, in Arabia. What's left? Allah wants to seal the deal with His legislation. And often, like initially, when you, like when, you, when you raise your children, for example, you give them initial instructions that they understand. And you hopefully work with them gradually until they are more capable of comprehending. And then you give them the fuller code, right? Of what is expected of them. But you don't start with, a, with, with um, you know, for example, um, you know, expectations about financial responsibility. You don't do that. You start with little things in life. Etiquettes, you know, love. You give them, you shower them with kindness, whatever. But you treat them according to their cognitive abilities. Sharia is the same way. It came down initially, brothers and sisters, the instructions of Allah, the guidance of Allah was all about faith. Build up the faith of people, then introduce legislation for them when they're ready. Make sense? But even Sharia itself was a gradual process. Would you imagine now, would you think that the last set of prescriptions that came down in Sharia were the definitive ones or were the ones that were part of the build-up process? Clearly they're going to be the definitive ones at the end. That's it. It's a wrap-up. I'm giving you the final things. That's it. There is no more explanation needed. These are the things you need to uphold. Surah Al-Ma'idah is like this. It came amongst the last after the conquest of Mecca. So the rulings in it, the, the, the legal prescriptions in it, governing, I, I will get into what it's talking about, pretty much are definitive. That's it. Uphold those. Uphold those. How heavy was this surah? This surah was so heavy that according to the narration, it came down to the Prophet ﷺ when he was on his camel. So imagine, Prophet ﷺ would receive revelation in all kinds of mode of life. He'd be in his bed, he would be sitting with his friends talking, he would be on his camel and suddenly Jibreel would come down delivering revelation. And people around him would know. Because these experiences are very intense. And he would break into this severe sweat. And subhanAllah, like he would get into this zone. Right? Because he's now being engaged by Jibreel and Quran is being revealed and it's very heavy. It's very heavy when we hear the revelation about it causing the mountain to crumble, it used to cause the, the consciousness, the, the back of the Prophet ﷺ almost crumble. It's very heavy, it's intense. And the experience itself is not light on him, that it caused him even physical symptoms. Right? So it came down while he is on the camel, and it was so heavy, the descent of the surah was so heavy, that even the camel, according to the report, felt it. And it couldn't, it, it had to stop. 
right? And 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 come down, like Subhanallah, uh, put its feet down. It couldn't because of the weight. How did it feel? It it's not seen. Allah only Allah knows, right? And it was so happy that the Prophet ﷺ, feeling what has happened to the camel, got off the camel to relieve the camel. Imagine, got off, dismounted off the camel to relieve the camel of it. What's the message? The message is that this contains very significant things for our lives. Take it seriously. It's the wrap-up of the legislation of Allah to all of us. So take it seriously and do not take it lightly. The code of Allah, the legislation of Allah, the sharia of Allah is not light. And it's intended for something extraordinary for all of us. That's what we forget. Right? So this is the context. Abdullah ibn Mas'ud said, this surah is all khair. It's all good for you. Pay attention. He says, pay attention. Give it your ears. Whatever good you see in it, execute it right away. Whatever bad things it forbids you from doing, avoid it. It's all good for you. Aisha said the same thing. This She says, this is amongst the last of the revelations of Allah Azza wa Jal. She says, you're going to find two things in this. This is the instruction of our mother, Aisha. She says, this is, she's pointing to it, one of the last of the revelations of Allah. You're going to find two things in it. Halas and harams. When you find halas in it, uphold those. When you have harams, you see harams in this surah, avoid them. Why is she saying this? She's our mother, she cares. I mean, when the mother and the father instructs their children, it might come across as intense, but what is the feeling, the motivation underneath it? Love and affection. Mercy, hopefully, right? For good fathers and mothers, normal people, right? Absolute desire for the benefit of your children. Even though it looks like it's very technical and intense and difficult. That's Sharia, brothers and sisters. Sharia appears to be a very intense set of codes and regulations and prescriptions. And I'm afraid we treated our faith like this. We treated Islam and the way we teach it ultimately is, 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 is comes down to just a set of codes from a legislator and you have to uphold them and otherwise you're in trouble and you're going to the hellfire. Right? Isn't that how we look at Islam? So superficial. What did we miss out? On the motivation of Allah, on the intentions of Allah and the message of Allah which is absolute affection and mercy and care towards you and me. And that these codes are intended for our well-being. We don't understand how, how to safeguard ourselves. Like the child, again, not understanding how to safeguard themselves. They need the adults. The adult in this equation, and Allah is above analogy, is Allah. Allah is above analogy. He is the one who knows, who creates, and He gives what is needed for our health and well-being. Individual well-being, familial well-being, social well-being. But we don't understand. So we start treating the code as a child deals with the space. I don't want to do that. No, this is too difficult. How come? It's unfair. Right? How come you told this to my sibling, not me? We start to whine and complain. Not understanding, if you only uphold this, it's going to be great for you. But not only this, there's something that is a, a signature of this surah. It's a contract. Every single thing in our lives is about contract. Contracts. This is the surah, it's called the surah of uqud, of, of, of contracts. If you look at a contract, like a, you know, marriage, you enter into a contract. Contract. There are two ways to approach marriage. First of all, it's a contract, there's no doubt about it. What is a contract? It's an agreement between two parties. You do this, I do that. And when we both uphold our ends of the bargain, our ends of the contract, what happens? 
Good things happen. Good things happen. But how do you feel when you, your partner really upholds their duties? You go into a marriage, you know there's, there should be love, there should be affection, there should be financial responsibilities towards one another, familial, uh, taking care of each other, providing for each other, etc., etc. All these expectations, taking care of the children, right? Maintaining the secrecy and the sanctity of the home, right? Respecting parents, all the stuff that when I'm in trouble and I'm sick, you'll be there for me. All the expectations, we expect them. That's part of a contract, by the way. When we know of a couple where one of the sides or two sides violated that, let's say they cheated on their spouses. Let's say. They did something horrendous. They stole from them. While they're in the midst of trouble in life, they gave up on them and they divorced them. What do we say about these people? Shameful. We look at them with shame. Isn't it true? Why is that? They violated the contract. Socially understood contract. That in marriage, you don't do these things. You don't need to write them on paper. You don't need to write them. It's understood. Father and child have a contract. Isn't it true? Father and mother have responsibilities and the child is expected to do this. It's actually an, a contract. When you enter into this masjid, isn't there a contract? Believe me, there is a contract. There is a contract. You didn't actually get to sign it, but it's understood. You need to be clean. Take off your shoes. Don't bother anybody. Right? Read Quran like now with a loud voice. Right? Um, etc., etc. This is a place of uh, adoration of Allah. It's not a place of, uh, for example, I don't know, conducting business. There are all kinds of things that are expected. When you enter a message, it's a contract. When you're outside, there's a contract. With every single entity and every single thing in this life, even with yourself, there are contracts. Isn't it true? When you sign up for particular goals in your life and you say, I have to do this, you've actually literally signed up a contract with yourself. So in life, we have a set of contracts. Contracts with yourself, contracts with other people, and then ultimately contracts with Allah. Now I want to just highlight for you the, the personality of this surah and how we understand Islam and contracts. I know, I know people when they come up to me, they talk to me about marriage, for example. I see two sets of people. People who are coming to me literally saying, not the majority, alhamdulillah. So I'm going to marry somebody. We need to draft something. I said, great. What do you want to write in it? He said, all kinds. You know, I, I, I said, okay, just go write them down, then come back to me. Because I don't know what you're going to write. And I'm not going to write it for you. So they come back, Wallah, well, this is very few. Have written for me like 20 page documents. Of everything, including, you shall not marry another person. Blah, 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 blah. Like everything, you should, you should honor me, you should respect me. Blah, blah, blah. And it's all like written, written out, fully. And who can divorce who? I don't know how you treat parents, and children, and Islamic schools, and money. And I have a, I'm like, what's left? You're going to write everything here in this contract. Why are you writing it? So I asked, why are we writing it in the contract? Do you trust him or her? Like, I don't know, just to kind of be sure. I'm like, then you don't trust. Then why are you married? My point is, if you're going to reduce the marriage to a contract and I'm going to enter into the marriage, it's a contract for sure. It's understood. And you have every right, by the way, Islamically, to write everything out. As long as the other party agrees. But my concern when I look at people like this, who have not even established what? What is it? Trust. There's no trust. They're entering it as if it's an economic financial contract. So, I'm so afraid of you, I'm going to need to write everything out. Right? 
and come into the marriage, I swear to you, asking me, tell me all my rights. I'm like, so you don't know about your rights, right? What about their rights? Oh yeah, yeah, their rights too. So you're going to enter it as a relationship of rights and obligations. Is that true? They're like, yeah, absolutely, to protect myself. I'm like, that's not marriage. Is rights and obligations that important? Absolutely. That's what a contract is about. But what's underneath? What's, what's, what's the, the thing that enfolds all of that? Allah said it in the Quran. We forget it. Mawadda and rahmah. Affection and mercy. If affection and mercy are absent, does the contract work? Even if you uphold it. Means nothing. Means nothing. Isn't it true? Surah Al-Ma'idah is like this. There's a lot of code in Islam. Sharia. Right? It's an agreement. It's a contract. But we forget what Allah has done for us in this contract. And I'll talk about it, inshallah. Allah has done everything. And we have to uphold our end of the contract. And it's like the guest coming into a home. But remember when I spoke of the Ma'idah. What was in the home? Why did they receive you? Because they what? Love you. They want to spend time with you. They honor you. Underneath it's like, again, like marriage. Like a father with a child. Mother with a child. There's affection and mercy and care for you. We forgot about that in Sharia. And we treat it, we reduce Sharia to what? Do's and don'ts only. And we just want to make sure that we check the list. Or we argue about the list. And come up with excuses about the list. Not understanding what? The spirit of Allah behind it. The spirit of Sharia itself. And why Allah instituted Sharia? It's literally like the table spread out for guests. Take from it, but avoid certain things. And it's for your care, and it's for your growth, and it's for your happiness and joy. But you have to uphold your end of the contract. Make sense? This surah does that. It presents all kinds of prescriptions. Halas, harams, halas, harams. And suddenly you see an amazing verse coming in the midst of all of it. And I'm going to highlight it right now. Because it needs to color every single thing we look at in this surah. Allah Azza, look at this beautiful thing. He's telling it, he starts the surah, oh... Let me actually tell you the first verse and then I'll go into the second verse. Allah begins the surah by saying, Ya ayyuhal ladheena aman. Oh you who what? Believe. So he's making a call. I am a husband. Oh my wife. Oh child. Oh observant of the prayer. Congregant. Please don't do that. Or do this. Isn't it true? We make announcements in the masjid. You speak to your spouse when you're like, need to remind them about something. To your child. Why do you call them with that, you remind them that they have a relationship to you. And the title itself reminds you of your contract. Isn't it true? Child, dad, mom. Automatically the title itself should remind you of your obligations and responsibilities. When Allah says, all you who believe, He's calling upon a certain set of people that He has a what with? Certain contract. And He has a relationship with everybody. But and especially... And it's a special relationship with, with those who agreed with him to something. Isn't it true? Brothers and sisters, the first contract with Allah is faith itself, not sharia. You have to understand. There are levels of contracts with Allah. Two broad categories of contracts. The first contract that Allah expected you to sign is what? Was it sharia? No, what was it? You need to believe in me. You don't start with somebody by the way sharia. Disaster. Wallahi disaster. Recently I heard of someone was interested in Islam, brothers and sisters. Interested in Islam. Came into a masjid, and he had, um, uh, what is it called? The thing on the skin. <laughs> Tattoos. 
He had tattoos and they didn't know he was non-Muslim. Wallah, brother sister, he was kicked out. Like reprimanded by people like, oh, entering masjid, tattoos, get out of here. Guy just left. That was his experience of the masjid. What's the mind obsessed with, right? You like the code, this. They don't even understand the context. Who is this person? Because it doesn't matter, right? We forgot about the spirit, the why. All we're obsessed with is the superficial things, right? Allah never starts like this. This person, subhanAllah, like left completely. Like he's like, I'm not interested in any of this. What kind of an experience is that? What kind of people are these, right? And most of us are, are, are treating others and treating our faith like that. So Allah Aja says, oh you who believe, that's the first contract. Like the demand of people to appreciate and acknowledge the existence of Allah. It's very important before anything else. Before tattoos, before drinking, before, right? All the halals and the harams in the world, the more critical contract is what? Seeing that Allah is the creator and seeing that he deserves to be worshipped. So Allah wants us to sign that first contract. Why should we sign it? What's Allah's argument? I made you and I give you everything. Who else is your maker? Who else is your God? Right? That's really very simple. So in our instinct, fitrah, if you have a natural fitrah, natural uh, unmolested, healthy nature to you, you'll see it right away. Oh, he made me. He deserves to be worshipped. Who else? I have? And, and you have an internal yearning for it. That's the first concern of our faith, or of, of Allah, to make you a believer. Once you sign the faith contract, what does that imply now? There are particular things you have to do. For you to maintain that faith, and maintain yourself, and establish a very healthy family and a community. Remember, the contract is there for you, your benefit, similar to a marriage contract. It's really there to make the, the relationship very, very beautiful and flourishing, and stable and serene. And the ingredients of it are rahmah, mercy, affection, fulfillment of obligations and responsibilities. We do these things as much as we can, and also we forgive each other, that's part of the contract, right? We don't violate, etc., etc., etc. You do these things, you're going to be happy. Allah does the same thing. After you've signed the faith contract, you acknowledge Him as your nurture, you acknowledge Him as the source of life, then wouldn't you acknowledge Him as the source of codes? As the source of the things that will help you grow and, and function well in life, familially, socially, economically, and politically? He is also giving you a cognition, an intellect to use. So He's going to draw the framework for you. He's not going to tell you every single specific thing in life. No, he gave you a brain. But he's going to draw large, broad lines for you. Because we human beings have something called desire that can cloud your judgment and your heart. You can lose your attention and you can start violating yourself and others. So Allah needs to maintain Allah needs to maintain everyone. So he establishes his goal. After you've signed the faith contract, you say, Ya Allah, indeed you are the one who has every right to prescribe. So I'm going to sign what contract and the second contract. Make sense? Automatically, if you have signed the first faith contract, you have signed the second. Expect it. This, that's it. It's like going into a marriage, sign the, the marriage contract. When you have children, you say, no, I didn't sign up for this. I don't know about this children thing. Well, you could have, but you had to what? Stipulate it from the beginning. Right? But it's understood. Understood automatically. You don't say, I'm just signing out of the marriage. Khalas are done. Or when you go into marriage contract, you don't sign out of the marriage uh, the contract with your parents. 
No, you don't do that. It's all interlinked. So as soon as you sign the faith contract, say, La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah, you're expected now to try your best to do what? Do the halals that Allah prescribed and avoid the harams that He wants. Prescribed. Why? For your benefit. It's like the ma'idah. I spread it out for you. I'm going to ask you not to do particular things. When you come into my home, you eat from the food, you sit with me, but you don't do what? You don't go into my bedroom and just hang on the bed, for example, right? We don't do that. This haram, it's understood. You don't do it in somebody's home. It's not good for you, and it's not good for them. So Allah, as the owner, has every right to legislate everything, because He's already provided for you, and then restrict particular things that are harmful to you. So Allah begins the surah by again saying, all you who believe, who signed that contract with me, what should you do? Awfu Remember this surah came at what? At the end. I've given you Surah An-Nisa, Surah Al-Imran, Surah Al-Baqarah. I've given you a lot of legislation about how to do inheritance, how to do your marriage, how to treat your parents, how to deal with Allah. I've given you things to avoid, riba, killing. What should you do now? He said, please, awf, what's wafa? Please honor, fulfill, and be loyal in upholding the things that I've asked you to do. Awfu bil uqud. Honor your contracts. Beautiful. Wallahi, brothers, this is affectionate call from Allah. To who? Those who say they believed. Actively engaging in believing in Allah. Aman is a verb. It's not an out, it's a verb. Oh, you who are really engaging in the act of believing in Allah all the time. Since you signed that contract, you need to be loyal. Brothers and sisters, wafa in Arabic is a beautiful word. Because again, we reduce sharia to technicalities and do's and don'ts. Allah says, no, I expect wafa from you. You know what wafa, brothers and sisters? It's beyond just to fulfill something. It's to be loyal to someone. Because why? Allah deserves it. Now I want to, to, to think about this situation. In our marriage contract, in the contract with our children, when someone is not loyal, and they're not upholding their end of the contract, right? Uh, how do you feel? Somebody cheated on you. Somebody stabbed you in the back. <coughs> Somebody lied against you. And you're, they're your friends, they're your partner. How do you feel? Betrayed. What is their expectation? My expectation of my child is not that they listen to me because they have to. I want them to listen to me. Why? Because they love me. They should be loyal. I'm good to you. Well, Allah says, what does a parent want? Just to show you to see that their children appreciate them and love them for who they are, for what they have done. That's what we tell our children. Didn't I do that for you? Didn't I do that for you? Couples, when someone betrays, what do we say? Didn't I do for you? How would you, how would you do that? How would you violate this? This promise, this agreement. Brothers and when we're loyal, relationships become healthy. Like, I can trust you now. I, I, it feels good, doesn't it? When people are loyal to you, doesn't it feel good? It feels great. When people betray you, it's the worst thing in life. Betrayal is the worst thing in life. Loyalty helps us enjoy life. Helps us establish relationships. Because if there's a breach of loyalty, all relationships break down and there's no trust. You cannot have a marriage. You cannot have a relationship with any friend. You cannot trust anyone. And we're constantly calculating for our benefit. So people become more self-centered. And it destroys society. Completely. With the absence of what? Loyalty. Upholding contracts. Right? 
even when we sign physical contracts, we were finding ways to manipulate them and get around them. Why? Because there's no loyalty. There's no devotion inside. Do you notice in Islam, everything is underpinned by consciousness of Allah so that you can be loyal even to people. So when you marry someone, you don't marry someone who says, that I could just write a good contract and honor it. Well, because your spouse can treat you like this. Say, so you know what? Allah said, my rights on you is that you listen to me. My right on... Can you imagine if your spouse treats you like that? And some do. Didn't you hear Prophet Muhammad Right? But what's better is that you, subhanAllah, your spouse fulfills those rights out of love and affection and not remind you about them. Isn't it true? That's what makes relationships beautiful, brothers and sisters. We forget all of this with Sharia. We treat Allah the same way. We look at things, we try to get around them, we want to do this and not do that, because Allah said so, which is great, but we forget that Allah demands what from us? Loyalty. We, that we do things, we strive, because Allah deserves to be worshipped, deserves to be obeyed. That we understand that Allah's Sharia is beautiful for all of us. So Allah says, all you who believe, fulfill, honor, and be loyal in upholding the covenant that I have with you. Because I've already what? created you, made you, it's understood and given you everything then he says next look at how he begins he says it has been made halal for you to eat from bahima bahima al-an'am is the grazing uh, the, the cattle that pastures I mean maybe after this I'll t- we can get into the word behima, right? You know in Arabic, when you're upset with somebody, you call them what? Behim, right? It's like, <laughs> like I, I see Arabic speaking people laugh, laughing. Because we call our children behim all the time, right? Bad, bad idea. So behima is re- reference to animals. And I was talking to people who spoke Arabic yesterday, testing them, right? Like, do you understand why behima is a bad word? Or no, why is it a reference to an animal? Right? Everything in Arabic comes back to the root. That's what's beautiful. So we know the behemoth. We call people behemoths. We call animals behemoths, which is not a matter. Like, behemoth is an animal, right? But we, we use it to insult others when they per, exhibit particular behaviors, right? But really, at the, at the bottom of it, behemoth is something mubham, not understanding. That's really what it's. So Allah says, animals are behemoths because they have no comprehension beyond the limited functions. Something mubham is not understood. That's why we call it behemoth. So when we call somebody behem, don't do that, right? It's really a reference to them not thinking. That's really what it is. I'm just wanting to clarify why the word behemoth in Arabic is used and what the root of it is. So Allah says, cattle that grazes the pastures has been made what? Haram? This is halal. What's the rule of Islam that you extract from this? Everything is what? Halal except the things that Allah made haram. You understand? It's a rule of Islam. It's a rule of Sharia. Rule of fiqh. One of the most fundamental rules of fiqh is that everything Allah created is what? Halal. Except the limited things that He made haram. What do we do? Exact opposite. Everything is haram. Except the things that, are, that have been made halal. No. If something has not been talked about in Quran and Sunnah, it's what? Halal. Unless now the scholars compared it to something. So you don't say, well, smoking is not here. 
right? No, no, no. Leave that to the scholars, right? No, no, no. Allah also established broad rules about things that are harmful to you. And it's the job of the scholars to study that and compare it and do this analogy and say, well, no, it is similar, for example, to khamr. And since it's harmful for you, it's haram. So we don't make that, those judgments. You don't just say, because marijuana is not specifically mentioned here, it's halal, right? Because that's the rule. No, no, you don't make the rules. But generally speaking, everything is halal except the things that Allah made haram. Why is Allah doing this? It's His prescription. He's the pro- Who made the cattle? Allah. You know, underneath this, there are two ways to read this verse. Legally, it says everything is halal. So that's a, the, the legal um, scholar, the jurist looks at this purely from a legalistic point of view. Say, everything is halal except the things that Allah made haram. That's a contract. Isn't it? For those who believe. So as soon as you signed up with La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah, everything from cattle is halal for you to eat. Except the things that Allah made haram. What's the second reading? How would you read this differently? Remember when we spoke of marriage and the contract, what's underneath it? Affection, spirit, beauty. What is Allah telling you? Oh, remember the one who gave you all the halals is who? Allah. You see the, you see the intimate message here? So superficially, look at just legalities, illegalities, halals, harams. But Allah is saying underneath it, I am the one who actually provided you with the sheep and made the goat for you and made them actually capable of being slaughtered for you and made the meat delicious for you, all for you. I'm the one who created the camel. I'm the one who did this. I'm, without all these things, you wouldn't even survive. And I made them specifically tailored for you. And for you to ride on them. Underneath it, underneath it is actually a beautiful appeal from Allah. Love me. right? Appreciate me. I'm the host who has given you what? The table spread out with foods. Aren't you appreciative of this? You see the two readings? Beautiful reading, brothers and sisters. So since He provided that food and provided that table spread out with His generous offerings, is it, doesn't He have the right to demand of us that we are polite when we sit on the table? That's what Allah said. Can't you be polite when you sit on the table and consume my food since you're already consuming it? What do we do? We consume the blessings of Allah, the favors of Allah, and then we violate Him. We violate, we violate actually the, even the, the, the gift itself. Look at what we do with animals. We violate them. All, all kinds of ways. We mistreat them. We mistreat the people. We mistreat the land. We mistreat the court of Allah Azza wa We violate it. Now there are those who have not signed up for the faith contract. They're using already the gifts of Allah. But Allah cannot expect much more than them. But there are those who acknowledge Allah and still violate the court of Allah when they go into His home, meaning, you know, metaphorically speaking, beyond the masjid, they consume everything. Once you exist in this life, you're in the court of Allah. You're consuming it all. You're breathing His air. Right? You're using the cells He has given you, the limbs, everything. And then we say, why should I bother? I know better. Right? Allah is saying, I deserve better from you. All that is within the word, أُحِلَّتْ لَكُمْ So He says next, except the things that have been specifically mentioned, إِلَّا مَا يُتْلَعَلِكُمْ Except the things that are defined for you to be haram. غَيْرَ مُحِلِّ الصَّيْدِ وَأَنْتُمْ حَرَامِ So He now gets into all kinds of areas in the surah. He's going to talk about prescriptions for halals and harams in hajj, for marriage, dietary, foods, foods, drinks, gambling, wine, right? Relationships with even non-Muslims, 
all kinds of areas are covered in this surah to say this is something you do, this is something you don't do. Beautiful, right? So now in this first verse, he gives us, he gets into it right away. The beautiful thing about this surah, he gets into it right away. And he says, when you're in ihram, what is ihram? Like, what's ihram? When you go into hajj or umrah, to visit with Allah in that sacred space, you have to avoid certain things that are already halal. So there's an extra, so there's halals that will be made haram only at particular times and places. Otherwise, they're halal outside. Give me an example. What is it? What is it? Hunting, right. Fasting, hunting. Hunting when? Can you not hunt? Hunt, you can hunt, of course. Right? But when you're in ihram, you can't hunt. So it becomes a haram only in a specific place, only at a specific time. Make sense? When you're in a state of ihram, visiting with Allah and Kaaba. That's it. What else? To be exactly. There's no intimacy there. It's halal. But no, not there. It's haram. Only when you're in a state of ihram. Etc. Etc. You know the deal. Why is Allah doing this? Are you making it? Why are you making it so difficult? Because he's the legislator. He knows better. Right? It's part of our training. It's part, because the whole trip, by the way, of Hajj and Umrah is dedicated to Allah. To train us to remember Allah and to be equalized. So Allah now wants you to restrain yourself further to learn and get closer to Him. So these are not a joke. So what is Allah saying here in this? Earth? Don't treat these things as a joke. Oh, why do I have to pelt stones at a pillar? How silly is that? Allah says, don't you say that. Allah knows better. You need, you know, you need to pelt the stones at that stone. You need to. At the Jamarat. You need to do this. Why seven times around the Kaaba? Allah said so. Because He's what? He's the one who made you. Remember? like, See, if you don't, if you forget who Allah is, La ilaha illallah, you start questioning. It's like, what is stupid? Why do I have to do that? Why do I have to deal with all of this? Go seven times around this. Safa Marwa. Get tired, exhausted with three million people. Dressed in things without underwear. Why should I do that? Right? I'm going to cut my nails. What does nails have to do with faith? Cutting my hair a little bit. Why should I bother? Makes no sense. Does it? No, it makes a lot of sense. It might not make sense to you. But the one who made you understands it better. And he gave you this for what? For your well-being and out of love and affection. SubhanAllah. That's what's beautiful about it all. So Allah gives us a, a glimpse of this. He says, when you're in a state of ihram, don't make now hunting halal. Don't stop manipulating the code and breaking it. Allah does He prescribes as He wants, but His wants are good. He does what is best for all of us. Then He says, Ya another appeal to who? Ya Amanu. You signed the contract. La Allah. And Allah says, do not make la tuhillu sha'air Allah. What's sha'ira? Sha'ir Allah is the symbols and the rituals of Allah that He prescribed. A good example is Hajj and Umrah. What I just told you are examples of the symbols of Allah. For example, men dressing in these two pieces of cloth when they enter into a state of ihram is sha'ira and sha'ir Allah. It's a symbol of Allah. It's a ritual of Allah. Pelting the jamarat in Hajj is a one of those symbols and rituals of Allah. Going seven times around the Kaaba, drinking from Zamzam. Just in Hajj. Of course, there's Sha'ir outside of Hajj. I'm just talking about Hajj. 
Allah says, don't make the things that are made haram for you in Hajj and Umrah halal, and don't mess with these symbols. Why are they important? Because they're for your benefit, your well-being, and the well-being of the community. And they're the things intended to build your faith. You know when you go 7 times around the Kaaba? It's for your faith to build it. 7 times around, uh, you know, between Safa and Marwa, to build faith. And remember the journey of Hajar. You're meant to walk it. Allah prescribed it, like exactly like the oil for the engine of a car. It's not us who define what is important to build and maintain the faith. It's the prescriber and the legislator. Allah says, that's my contract with you. I don't benefit from the seven times around the Kaaba. You benefit. You signed up for La ilaha Allah, you better do them. You can't say, I'm not going to do Hajj either. Make sense? So now, Allah calls it haram. State of ihram from, from the word haram. Haram is what? Forbidden. Why do we call it Masjid al-Haram? Forbidden mosque? Do you notice the, like it's an oxymoron? It's like, what is haram about the thing that is there for Allah and it's halal to visit? Why is it called haram? Why is it called al-Masjid al-Haram? Have you ever thought about this? It's called the haram masjid? So should I not go there? It's like, what does that mean? Haram, exactly, it's true. Yeah. It's so sacred that your behavior, attitude, should be at a higher level there now upholding another set of harams because it's so sacred. The most, all the harams around the Kaaba and in the places that are so sacred are meant for the well-being of yourself and others. So when we say don't hunt, you know what it's about? Even animals shouldn't be hurt here. SubhanAllah. No plants, don't cut a tree. I wanted to learn about building a relationship even with the plant and the animal. Now can you hurt someone and curse at them? And Of course you cannot curse at anybody in general. But if you do it in a state of ihram, you can be spoiling your hajj and your umrah. If you, if you say profane word. Why? Because their sanctity, their safety is sacred. It's about learning how to sanctify the what? The safety of everyone around you. They need to be fully protected. It's a contract. Maybe we didn't learn about contracts outside of hajj. How to treat people. Allah now puts you in a training where the stakes are so high that if you violate them, your hajj is gone. So, we, so that you learn how to restrain your tongue. Similar to fasting, right? Fasting, what are we training? It's a contract. Is it for Allah's benefit? No. You have to learn how to restrain your tongue. How to restrain your eye. How to keep away from food and drink. For your own growth. For my growth. So Allah says, don't make these things haram if I made them halal or halal if I made them haram. And don't mess with the rituals of Allah Azza wa I'll give you another example. Allah prescribed four sacred months in which something is haram. Fighting. They're called what? Al-Ashhur. Al-Hurum. Haram months. Again, haram masjid, haram months. What are they, by the way? Now, what are the four sacred months in which there is no... Muharram. It's actually called the month of haram. Muharram. First month. Not Shaban. Al-Shawwal. Rajab. And Dhul Hijjah, the month of Hajj, and Dhul Qa'da. What's Qa'da? Sitting. It's called literally the month of sitting. So the month of Hajj, Dhul Hijjah, Dhul Qa'da is month of sitting, Rajab, and Muharram the first month. Why did Allah make them haram to fight in? Here's what used to happen. 
Arabs before, they used to have periods of time where they would not fight. But then they start playing with them. So Allah says, listen, there are four months in which you cannot fight with each other. Wallahi, beautiful wisdom, if you understood Sharia. You know what? why that has happened? But this is what happens if you have a relationship in your family where you're fighting for three, four years non-stop. What happens eventually to relationships? They're done, they're destroyed. But what else? What do you get used to? You, you don't even know a sense of peace. Like there are many families I know of, they don't even have a sense of peace inside. They never even understood what peace is. Because they grew up fighting. They saw their parents fighting. They're fighting with their siblings. So the idea of peace in the family is like, what is that? Like I'm not used to it. You know people, there are people who are really aggressive. They don't know how to live peacefully. It's just they never experienced it. There are wars that have happened on this earth that can take years. World War One, two, and many other years. There are the hundred war years, the hundred year war. I think between England and France. I forgot. Nur uh, Sultan, am I messing this up? Isn't there a long war between England? How long did it take? What is that? Catholics. How long did it take? Decades, right? And we know there are things that take centuries. Aws and Khazraj in Medina, they fought for decades, long time. What happens with this? Literally, you don't even understand what peace is about. Allah prescribed four months in which fighting is haram. Why? What do you think? What's the thing? What do you think the wisdom is? So now we're fighting. Suddenly, Muharram comes like, oh shoot, I have to lay down my arms, otherwise I'm breaching the contract with Allah. And I'm really in serious, serious trouble. What happens at that month if I'm not fighting? Hopefully. You start to, yeah, so it's peace, but what are you, what are you feeling? You actually feel it. It's like, oh shoot, I have a chance now to sit with my children, to sit without having to worry about a bomb being dropped on my home. What do you start feeling? Wow, this is good. This is actually good. SubhanAllah, what is Allah giving us an opportunity to do? Breathe. And experience life without what? Conflict. War. Hurting each other. Turns out that these four months are meant for us, Wallah, brothers and sisters, to calm down. And actually end the war. It's literally prescribed to just end the war. So that you can get back to a semblance of normalcy in life and really like um, yearn for it, feel it, feel the need for it. That's what the four months are for. So Allah says, don't mess with those four months. Because guess what the Arabs used to do? Violate them. Violate them. And then they started saying, no, 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 no. I'm going to actually postpone the, the, the stoppage of the war until after the period of Hajj. Right? They start manipulating. Allah says, you don't manipulate this. These are rights of Allah to prescribe. So Allah then continues by saying, do not make other things in Hajj and Umrah haram. Hadi is the cattle that they used to drive for slaughter in the Kaaba. It's meant for that specific purpose. It's there for the sake of Allah, feeding the poor. Don't go steal somebody's sheep. That's haram. And then Al-Qala'id, even, it's beautiful. Qala'id is they used to mark the, the cattle that they used to take for hajj, for slaughter, with like a pendant around its neck. Allah says, even the pendant is haram for you. Don't mess with that pendant. Make sense? So not only the meat and the sheep, but what is used to mark it is haram for you when you're in a state of ihram in that place. Don't mess with it. Don't question it. Allah continues on by, the, by, the, by saying, he lays down a beautiful role, for, uh, beautiful expectation, duty upon those who sign the faith contract. 
What a beautiful thing that distinguishes our faith, Islam. He says, don't let your hatred of another people that barred you, forbade you to come into the sacred mosque. Who are these? The kuffar, what did they do, do to the Muslims? When they came to, when they went to Medina, they wanted to come for Umrah and Hajj, what did they say? No, you can't come in. They, you know, they just follow, they're, they're, they're oppressive. And they um, prevented people, peace-loving people, from coming to worship and exercise their right to worship Allah in the masjid. So they were very oppressive towards them, and they kept them out, and they stole their property, etc., etc., etc. Naturally, how do you feel about somebody who did that to you? Somebody who really hurt you. You feel animosity towards them. Is Allah saying you cannot feel animosity? He never said that. Brothers and sisters, when you're hurt, you have every right to feel a grievance and an injustice. To feel hurt. And even sometimes when we say hate, like you cannot just say, can't hate. No, these are natural feelings. Now there is hate that is not good, and there is hate that is healthy. Right? But these are not feelings you can just suppress altogether. Allah never says don't hate them. He says don't let your hatred of another people that hurt you do what? What do you think? Be unjust. To mistreat them. To aggress on them. Because they did it to you, don't do what? Don't do it to them. Make sense? You know, brothers and sisters, Umar ibn al-Khattab saw someone, someone killed his brother. Someone killed his brother. And this person became Muslim. Do you think Umar al-Khattab was like, oh, like, oh, come and give me a hug? He actually didn't. He couldn't stand seeing him in a circle of people. Why? He killed his brother. It was hard for him. So there was peace amongst them. And he said, he greeted, they greeted each other. He said, you know what? But when I'm around, I'm sorry, I, I can't look at your face. Because it reminds me of my brother who got killed by you. What did Allah say? That's haram? No, it's his net. Some people are better at it than others. But it's his feelings. Allah never says, like, suppress your feelings altogether. Some feelings are really destructive. We need to work on them. But the idea is that you cannot suppress all, the, all those feelings, negative feelings. But Allah asks you not to do what? Don't hurt him now. Don't seek vengeance. That's a haram. See, that's the beauty of our code, brothers and sisters. Even if we dislike someone. And that's why Allah says, in a marriage, for example, marry someone who fears Allah. Because even if they hate you, they will what? They'll still treat you well. They'll never violate you. That's the beauty of God fearing God, cautious husbands and wives. They'll always be good with you. Kind. Beyond even just kind with you. Even if they don't like you. That's the beauty of it. And Allah just says, you're expected as part of that contract to do this. Then Allah continues, our brothers and sisters, in this surah, talking about all other kinds of things. For example, Allah mentioned them briefly, inshallah. He'll get into the idea of killing. Remember a contract. As part of our contract on this earth, once we exist, is that we don't hurt each other psychologically, mentally, but what's the worst? Spill blood. Imagine what's happening in Syria, in Yemen, in Burma, in... Wow, brothers and sisters, the worst, most horrendous thing on earth is to believe that you have a right to take somebody else's life and end it. It's not their time. That's Allah's business. Allah says the ultimate violation and a breach of the contract and the destruction and spread of corruption in this earth is to take somebody's soul. Don't you do that. And then it's in this surah that we heard the verse that we all love to quote to non-Muslims, right? Whoever kills a soul, and that's what Allah says, and it's because of this that we've prescribed upon the Israelites, the Banu Israel, that whoever, what? Kills a soul, it's as if what? It's as if they killed all creation. 
Nasa jamia. And whoever brings someone to life, saves one life, it's like saving all life of all creation. Wow, brother, this is profound. I pray Allah we as Muslims not only quote it to others, but really understand it. The sanctity of human beings is so sacred. So sacred. Physically, mentally, emotionally, and psychologically. That's why, by the way, we're supposed to be truthful with each other. Kind, smile, right? Warm, loyal. Why? Because Allah cares for each other, for, for, for all of us. Because He wants it to feel good. When I'm surrounded by people that, that show me love and affection, I feel good. I feel motivated. I feel safe. If I'm surrounded by people that look at me with a stare, hurt me, offend me, insult me. How do you feel? Horrible. You can't produce in life. It destroys all notions of fulfillment and contentment in life. It's all for our benefit, brothers and sisters. All for our benefit. So the, even that is sacred. But the worst of it all, even if you just like somebody, you're not good with them, don't hurt them physically. Don't hurt. Otherwise, what's the, what's, if you violate that contract with Allah, what happens? Brothers and sisters, the worst thing you can do with Allah, Azzawajal, the worst sin, is really taking somebody's life away. There's nothing worse. Like you have, you're in serious, we're all in serious trouble with Allah Azzawajal. Allah clearly somebody seeks repentance, etc., etc., etc. There's a way out of it, but somebody's in deep trouble. In fact, the first cases to be adjudicated on the Day of Judgment is what? Blood. Blood. Of course, theft. Breach of contracts. Stealing the money of the orphan. All breach of contracts. Disloyalty. <laughs> You know, all these things are so serious with Allah because once we violate the honor and dignity and, and, and sanctity of others, peace on earth will end. But not, not only these people cannot live. You cannot live and function. Uh, so that's an example. Allah also, brothers and sisters, is beautiful here. He lays out a beautiful rule. He says, لا تحلوا all you who believe. Again, لا تحلوا طيبات ما أحل الله لكم. Now, if I made something um, halal for you do not, so we know the harams don't make the harams halals so I told you don't drink don't bribe don't engage in gambling what should you do? don't do it very simple if you do it it's a breach of contract and there are consequences but there's a flip what is the opposite? don't make what? the halals harams don't go around calling the halals of Allah Harams without knowing. It's as serious, it's equally egregious in the sight of Allah to call the halals harams. So that's why we have to be very careful when we say the word haram. You have to be really sure it's haram. And if you don't know, you just say, I don't know. But don't call it haram just because we don't know or because it looks like something else we know. Let the scholars deal with this, right? That's another powerful rule. What else does Allah Azza talk about in this one? Inshallah, we're wrapping up. Underneath it all, brothers and sisters, as I said, is a notion of purity. So you'll find Allah prescribing things for, for the physical aspect of our lives, social aspect, relationships, even with the non-Muslims in this surah. For example, this is a surah in which Allah says, I'm laying down the rules and the guidelines for dealing with non-Muslims. Right? You cannot aggress. Right? By, by, and by the way, a man, Muslim man can marry a non-Muslim woman, specifically Jews, Jew or Christian, but a righteous one. Muhsalat. So by the way, the condition, we can get into it in the QA, is not just to go marry a Jew or a Christian. He says muhsan. What is muhsan? Righteous, good person, faithful. It's halal for you. It's halal for you to do what also from the people of the book? Eat their food. It's made by halabahu. Allah Himself. It's not our business to make it what? 
haram. It's, that's it. Now, there are differences of opinion. That's a different story. But as a general rule, Allah made that rule. He made it. Don't make it. Don't mess with that. But it also regulates our relationships with, with, with the people of the book. And He even set political boundaries in the surah for where loyalties should be. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing surah in terms of legislation. But underneath it all is the notion of what? Affection and love of Allah Azawajal. Allah goes beyond this to tell us about purity and prescriptions for the soul even. When we go and do salah, what do we do before that? Wudu. Wudu, wudu. Allah talks about it here. He says, Oh you who believe, when you get up to pray, do what? Aghsilu. Wash yourselves. Brothers and sisters, why am I mentioning this as an example? To show you Allah's interest and concern is for our purification. Outward and inward, that Allah is even concerned with your heart and your soul to be purified because the water of the wudu is not going to really clean the dirt, most likely. Right? Ali ibn Abi Talib, he said, if it was about cleaning the dirt, it would have made more sense to wipe under what? Your shoe instead of on top of the shoe. It's symbolic. Ritual that you need to honor because it prepares you to meet Allah Azza wa Jal before you enter His court or the masjid or the salah. Think about meeting Allah by washing and remembering what your limbs are, are intended for. That's why we make the wudu. But Allah prescribes it here. It is meant for our growth. It's also part of the sharia. I wrap up with this, brothers and sisters. Two things, inshallah. Allah says, he says, pure things are not equivalent to khabith <coughs> is wicked. Even if you see a lot of wicked. If you see a habit in life, lifestyles, um, particular behaviors in society, hey, people are getting naked now. Right? In the name of liberation, in the name of whatever. Right? Being yourself. Allah says that's khabith. That destroys society. Even if it becomes so abundant around you, don't start to you know accept. Don't start accepting it. He says, no matter how abundant it is and how many people will accept it, it's not going to be equal to the pure. So even if the pure, the good things in life, even if they're little, nobody practices them but you. Hold on to them because they're pure, and don't lose the fact that it's it's the other that is khabith. So Allah says they're not equal. Don't walk down that path. Even if it appears to you that it's good, it's not good. The fact that most people do it doesn't make it good. And then Allah, and I wrap with this verse 54. The verse 54 for me is like the spirit of sharia. The spirit of the legislation of Allah. Allah says, after talking about this contract and everything, He says, O oh, you who believe, all you who believe, whoever turns away from this deed, from this contract, it's fine. Allah shall bring a people different than them, those who turned away, who breached the contract, who will do what? They love Allah and Allah loves them. SubhanAllah. Like, why is he talking about love here in the midst of contracts and sharia? Because remember, the, spread, the table spread out, it's all about what? Love of Allah for all of us. Allah is interested in love actually. Even the shari'ah, behind sharia. He says, if you don't like this sharia, you opt out of it, you opt out of this faith, it's fine. I'll bring people that will love me and I'll love them. Wow, what a beautiful signature to this surah. It's all really about affection and the care of Allah Azza wa And at the end of the surah, it's, it's captured in the story of the disciples when they requested the table. They said, oh Jesus, let your Lord send us a table with food. It will, it will help us build our faith more because it's a miracle. Allah says, sure, I'll send extra gifts. 
But if I send it to you, what? You better not now what? Violate the contract. And if you now disobey me and take partners with me, then the punishment will be what? More severe. That's what's called al-ma'idah. Ultimately a contract with Allah, but underpinned with what? Spirit of beauty and love and care from Allah. We'll stop here inshallah. Open the floor for questions.